You're listening to Policy, Guns and Money, the Aspie podcast, with me, Olivia Nelson. Welcome back to Aspie's special series on Australia-Indonesia relations, SBY's Tears. In this episode, Dr. David Angle and Hilary Mansour speak to Gary Quinlan, who was ambassador to Indonesia from 2018 until 2021. Their conversation explores developments in the Australia-Indonesia economic relationship, Indonesia's democracy, and the relationship between religion and politics in the country. They also consider the impacts of climate change and COVID-19 on Indonesia, and Australia's use of soft power. Gary, welcome to ASPI and thanks for participating in this podcast series. Thank you. Now, you arrived in Jakarta in early 2018, and at that point, our relationship was in one of its most cordial and cooperative phases. But that would have presented its own challenges, I expect. The official announcement of your appointment outlined, I'm talking mainly about enhancing the Australia-Indonesia economic relationship, which is remarkably underdone for two G20 economies that are neighbours. Specifically, the Indonesia-Australia Comprehensive Economic Partnership Agreement, or the IASEPA, at that stage was still being negotiated. Where did this set of issues sit among your priorities when you began your appointment? Very good question, very focused, because when I was preparing to go to Jakarta, the two priorities for us, including the Prime Minister at the time, were conclude on IHEPA, get those negotiations finalised, and also the Comprehensive Strategic Partnership. And when President Widodo came to Australia in March 2018, Sydney for the ASEAN Summit, special summit that was held, and there were bilateral meetings and so on between the two leaders, both of them committed to both of those things to happen by the end of August. And that was the job. And not just a short-term objective, because the implications of being able to leverage what was a very good relationship at that stage to achieve what potentially would be two groundbreaking agreements between the two countries, very substantial, very self-evident. So they were the two priorities, and we did manage to conclude them all by the end of August, but a different Prime Minister. President Jokowi is the first Indonesian president to have emerged from a business background, and this seems to shape his approach to government and to the economy. How do you assess Indonesia's economic prognosis under the Jokowi administration? President Widodo has evolved and developed as any leader does. He brought with him an historic change by being the first president elected from outside the political establishment in Jakarta. One point I would make is on the business side, his unique experience was as a businessman and not a tycoon, but a small businessman not a kind of intellectual economic reformer concerned about the bigger macro reforms and what they might mean. Now, he learned about that, but his initial sort of focus on economic policy was very much about how do you make business easier to do for the business person, get rid of red tape, try and deregulate to some extent, take out some of the wasted government involvements, including even in relation to fuel subsidies and all the rest of it. That was an objective he had early in his term. But the politics showed that that couldn't be done. And the vested interests economically in the country showed that you couldn't just abolish these kind of things without causing problems. So all of that was a bit of a cauldron of experience early on. It did make him a bit more cautious on economic reform. 
during the rest of his first term. The focus on infrastructure, which was the big thing he pushed in his first term, was overdue and was good and needed to be done. And he could see the advantages of that for all sorts of businesses across the archipelago. But getting to the bigger reform agenda took a lot longer for him to realise that you also had to focus a great deal more on that. He did announce as part of his campaigning for his second term, quite ambitious economic reform program, focused basically on deregulation, you know, to simplify things. And he did introduce an omnibus bill on job creation, which effectively focused on how can you deregulate the economy and the key sectors, make it easier for investment. The problem is that a lot of the actual regulations which will deregulate in different sectors are only now being drafted. And the vested interests are already trying to claw back what progress Wadodo made through the overall approach. So the, the jury's out a bit on that, um, and we can't really assess you know, how prospective the market is, for example, for Australian business until we see the progress on some of those reform issues. Look, there are so many problems facing the Indonesian economy for reform. They have the lowest revenue to tax base of any country uh, at any economy in the neighbourhood. It was only 11% of GDP, or just short of that pre-COVID. It's now 8%. That gives very little fiscal space to be able to do some of the reform and stimuluses that you need to respond to COVID, let alone the longer-term reform. Maybe the biggest constraint is on the skilled side, educating uh, young kids. Um, there are 60 million coming into the labour market by 2030, 60 million, and they need to be trained and skilled up. I'm not talking just about university graduates, but those who need vocational training. There's no real vocational education system. They're looking to our help to develop one, and that's going to be a real problem because those skills shortages, uh, particularly as you move to a more digital economy, becoming more and more obvious, and the constraint is getting bigger and bigger. And this opening up in Indonesia, seeking some foreign direct investment, as well as opening up tertiary sectors to mm. bring in, um, for example, Australia's a first campus in Indonesia, the Monash University, which is quite recent. How much more should the Australian government be doing to encourage the Australian business community to look toward opportunities like this in the Indonesian market? Yeah. Anything in the education and skills area is something desperately needed to reform and modernise the economy for the future in Indonesia. So anything we can do to help is a good thing. So you're absolutely right about all of that. And the move by Monash is, is terrific. It'll be the first foreign university campus. Uh, and Monash has recommitted twice during COVID to continuing with that. And I should say there are another six universities in Australia who in one way or another uh, are committed to increasing the degree of collaboration they have with institutions and partners in Indonesia. So that's a good thing. We've got to turn a mindset of Australian business who've tended to look past the Indonesian market because it's so hard in which to operate. We've got to turn that mindset around and say, well, hang on, it is changing in Indonesia, so look at it again. So that messaging from government's important. Um, the government's about to bring out um, what's called a blueprint on trade and investment for Indonesia fairly soon, and that's going to be a fairly good practical document which focuses on the most prospective sectors we see for Australian business in the near term. And until we can 
get a little bit of travel again engaging, we're not going to be able to do as much uh, successful advocacy as we'd like. Um, and it's got to cover not only trade and goods and services, but also investment. We want to improve the level of investment both ways. At the most senior level, we, we have new um, mechanisms in place to engage our top political leadership, Indonesia's top political leadership and top leaders in business. Coming after IHF last year, we're establishing a CEO roundtable. We've got a new senior economic trade and investment group between both governments and I participated in the first meeting a few months ago and that was very practical. First meeting, very practical. It actually addressed some of the specific problems we were already aware of from our businesses about doing business in both countries. Turning to another of the major themes of this series so far and that's the question of Indonesia's development as a democracy over the last 23 years. Now Indonesia's come a long way on that score but many observers both inside the country and outside, have expressed concerns about a drift away from liberal democracy, first under SBY, and but especially in more recent times. And others are noting that institutions like the, the Corruption Eradication Commission have been systematically enfeebled as part of that process. How resilient do you see Indonesia's democracy and the post-Suharto social contract? <laughs> An extremely decisive question in some ways, of course. Um, look, you mentioned liberal democracy. The blooming of flowers for liberal democracy was a very short period in Indonesia. And it came off the back of 30 years of the Suharto regime, the desperate problems of the Asian financial crisis, uh, people killed in rioting in the streets, not only students but others, a pretty dynamic period, and then um, uh, they they introduced a new system of governing themselves. But basically, it it was founded on, an, as you say, a new social or political contract, which was a lot of the old leaders simply ad um, uh, adjusting to the fact that we will make change because we need to, because people in Indonesia want change. And so the governance of the country will change and should change, but uh, they were still involved, many of them. Now, okay, so the military was um, uh, segmented out, if you like, formally from the future governance of the country, but that is something to continue to watch because a number of military, uh, very senior and very capable military individuals uh, are working with um, Widodo's administration and will continue to play a role, I think, uh, into the future. And I might say um, uh, they're people with a lot of experience in governing the archipelago, obviously, but also some of them uh, um, are very, very capable, so I think they'll continue to be a funnel of advice. The question is what role might they have in the future if that grows? Um, media became for a short period um, uh, after the fall of Suharto and everything else one of the dynamic drivers of change, there's no doubt. They were certainly reflecting what was happening on the ground and they were commenting, analysing and so on. Uh, that continues, but at a much, much reduced level. Um, the, um, you know, the media is a free, dynamic, open, uh, rumbanxious uh, part of the democracy. That period's sort of over, um, and and you know the media tycoons have reigned uh, reigned a lot of that in. You still get good media in Indonesia in various ways uh, and various areas, but as a strong bulwark of liberal democracy and so on, uh, it, it's not that role. 
the NGO community and so on really um, exploded big time after the fall of Sahato, and that was inevitable because they were coming off a period where they didn't have the freedoms and so on, and they became very strong um, in a situation where democracy itself and the nature of governance was changing and hadn't quite settled, uh, and they uh, had an influential and good role. That's tightened up. It's more restrained, um, and their role is no longer as significant. But all of that, to go back to your point about liberal democracy, reflects our attitude to democracy and how we, um, in Australia and elsewhere, might make an evaluation what constitutes democracy. The reality is that not all, but the majority of leaders uh, in Indonesia would have much more of a focus on you know, the collective future of Indonesia rather than the primacy of individual rights within the polity. So it's going to be a different kind of democracy in that sense, I think. A sort of default position will always be along those lines. It will be more towards a stronger, slightly more authoritarian model. I don't mean um, complete or full return to authoritarianism. I think that's extremely unlikely in Indonesia, but it won't quite be the liberal democracy we might judge. Politics in Indonesia is very transactional. It's not driven by values or even ideology, although religion plays a significant part. Um, but again, religion has transactionalized politically. So democracy is there, strong electoral democracy. I mean, you know, I mean, the last elections, presidential elections, you had the um, biggest election ever in world history on one day. And, um, it was contested by the defeated presidential candidate and there was some violence on the streets, there were some deaths. Uh, a lot of that was uh, manipulated, of course, but then it settled. The question at the end of the day is how representative is that democracy? And one aspect is you've got a very small catchment of potential political leaders, so you're getting a replay of some of the same people, but... There is another factor in play there, and that is decentralisation is creating a new group of leaders outside Jakarta and the Jakarta political establishment. And over the longer term, I think that's a strong support for democracy, representative democracy in Indonesia, although the risk is, of course, that those local um, groups and, and politics, of course, uh, are limited just to the same old people again. I'd like to go back to that idea of religion and the transactional nature of religion and politics because there's a real interplay there. One element of this was when Jokowi ran for re-election and selected Maruf Amin, uh, who is a religiously conservative uh, then-chair of the Indonesian Council of Ulamas. So I'm wondering how you see the interplay of religion, society and politics during your time in Jakarta and what do you expect to see here in the future? I used the word decisive earlier on about democracy, but this is even more decisive in a way because it will influence the nature of the democracy that you're going to have in Indonesia in the future. Inherently, uh, Islam will always be a very significant um, force and an influence. It's the question of how that influence plays out. Traditionally, Islam and political Islam in, in, in Indonesia has been, you know, with a few exceptions here and there at times, uh, uh, broadly uh, centred on very tolerant Indonesian polity in the constitution formation back in the late um, 1940s and so on. Specifically, the idea of Indonesia uh, you know, as a Sharia state was rejected. And that's been a very strong current 
And you particularly have the two incredibly influential, very big Muslim organisations who represent so many who've been an important part of that centredness uh, in the polity in Indonesia, Muhammadiyah and Enunu uh, Dilla Lama. If you look at the globe world at the moment, you've got a movement towards greater religious piety. You've got a movement towards a more evangelical form of religion across the world. And you've got um, far greater political influence in a lot of countries by those groups. Now, what we're seeing in Indonesia certainly is a move to a lot more social conservatism, and some of that reflects Muslim values, and it's played out in debates in the parliament and elsewhere. And it plays into the politics and transactional politics. In the last presidential elections, the results of those, Widodo you know, had basically a 10% um, uh, victory, but it was a more polarised electorate than ever before. And basically that came down to people who voted for Prabowo were in the more conservative parts of the country politically who'd voted for him last time, but they voted for him in bigger numbers, particularly in Java and elsewhere. And the people who voted for Widodo last time, they voted for him in bigger numbers. So all he had 97% of the non-Muslim vote and others, more tolerant, more moderate, more centrist uh, Muslims. And so you did face a more fractured, polarised country. So Widodo's response was to co-opt as many people um, from political Islam at the acceptable middle centrist, what he saw as the centrist level, into the current government, and he's basically got a coalition in the parliament which covers um, over three-quarters of the seats. He's got no opposition, that's an advantage of doing that, but he's also constituted a sort of national unity approach by trying to, trying to neutralise the dangers that, in terms of political Islam that came out of the elections. Now, the jury's out, I guess, on how that will evolve, but I'm pretty confident that it will hold at the centre. Now, what's going to happen with the extremist element? I don't, I don't mean terrorists. They're a separate issue. That's a bit unclear. Certainly, President Widodo has decided to try and neutralise them by being very strong in the way he approaches them and regulates them and the security forces keep a close eye on them, that could be a slightly dangerous point because he could actually push away people who he should try and co-opt rather than push them to an area where they feel they have no option and therefore might become slightly more extreme. One worry for Widodo and people very uh, legitimately is uh, what's going to happen with youth radicalisation because I mentioned the two big Islamic organisations, Muslim organisations, they have been so fundamental to the polity over the years. But the young kids now in university are living in dormitory suburbs. They're online, and COVID means they've been online all the time because they haven't been at school. And, they, and, and what data is available is they are picking up some pretty um, uh, dangerous ideas and some of them being radicalised uh, by doing that. Another milestone in our bilateral relations during your time occurred on the 31st of August 2018 when Jokowi and Scott Morrison signed the, the Indonesia-Australia Comprehensive Strategic Partnership in Jakarta. What does the CSP signify about the state of the bilateral relationship? It signifies, I think, that we are at a, um, a sweeter spot, if I could put it that way, um, in relations between the two countries. And it builds off a level of bilateral cooperation that the two countries have had 
in uh, areas, you know, counterterrorism, law enforcement, maritime cooperation, all those kind of things, defence security, uh, some education and other issues, uh, transport and so on, which in some areas is the closest and most intimate cooperation of any two countries in the region. So, you know, it's leveraging that to a higher level. But I think the key point is it was done deliberately by both countries. That which That's what makes so-called CSPs particularly important. They do actually mean something if you do something with them, but they are strategic messaging. Indonesia has three. It First one with China, more or less the same time as us. And then a few years later, in fact, it was 2018, very deliberately, they finalised one with India, the end of May, beginning of June, and then three months later with us. And the key thing there was that was deliberate decision by Indonesia to diversify their strategic engagements and to signal that they had done so. And I think that uh, is really, in the strategic universe, uh, a very important thing to have done. Well, Gary, those of us with a more cynical disposition ah. <laughs> might quibble that for all its symbolic importance and all that signalling that you mentioned, in practice, our CSP is far more comprehensive than it is strategic. How do you respond to that assessment and what scope is there for taking our partnership to a higher level in that stricter sense of the term yeah. strategic? David, what I'd say in the first instance is that the comprehensive strategic partnership was itself a deliberate response to the change in the regional strategic calculus. And we know what we're talking about. We're talking about um, China and we're talking about fault line, China, yes. the US, but not just the US, but a totally new dynamic in the region, but also that takes into account the, the rise of India, um, the strengthening of Japan under Abe and all the rest of it. So it was very deliberate um, and it, it was focused on the nature of the change in the region and what do you do as a country about that. And both our countries decided, well, you become more resilient and that resilience allows you to develop stronger partnerships with a number of other countries. Ultimately, the Indonesians want a new um, uh, equilibrium. And that equilibrium is not just about the United States and China. It's about us, but it's about India, it's Japan, Korea, and ASEAN. Importantly, ASEAN as well. Now, what do you do about that? Expectations that um, Indonesia will somehow, uh, in this new strategic partnership, uh, declare itself in, in, in some uh, more forceful way about worries and challenges from China, which it is aware of and alert to, are unrealistic. But it doesn't mean that uh, the potential for strategic alignment is not genuine and strong. If you look at the defence strategic review that was done last year, the Indonesians um, had no problem with it. They thought it was a good thing for us because it would make us more resilient. And they think, and this is what they say privately, and a more resilient Australia is important to us. Um, if you look at their attitude to the Quad, it is, well, we could inevitably never join you know, something like the Quad. And they do worry that the Quad might become a little bit too angular and um, elbowish and muscular in some way. But um, they think the way it's developing and its existence is probably a good thing for equilibrium and resilience in the region, um, particularly since the Quad is now focused in 
functional areas like COVID recovery, climate change, emerging technologies, um, they see the advantages because this is what they've wanted. They want countries like ourselves and others to step up and give them alternatives, options um, that they can choose from in how they're going to develop themselves and who they're going to be partnered with in the future. And the other factor is what are called minilaterals, as you know, other countries, small groupings. You've got Australia, um, uh, India and Indonesia have agreed a trilateral relationship. will focus on um, uh, COVID relief and uh, maritime cooperation, particularly as you move towards the Indian Ocean and those areas that come through the transept into the oceans with Indonesia. Indonesia's got um, minilateral arrangements with uh, India and Japan. So there's a, a fabric of strategic relationships which are all about regional resilience, backed in by a stronger ASEAN, and Indonesia has been pushing the centrality of uh, ASEAN and the Indo-Pacific outlook that they've developed on that, which was essential for them to do. The interesting thing about that, by the way, is it articulates the same principles that we've written in our foreign policy, white papers, defence white papers and everything else. It's actually the same principles. Inevitably, um, it's a bit different in how it casts them, uh, the implementation. So there are a lot of positive things there which um, are good in terms of the strategic alignment. We're now talking to us with the Indonesians a lot, lot more, a lot more candidly about everybody else. Um, and I'd like to talk now about another security threat, oh. um, which is climate change. Oh, yes, yeah. And you mentioned climate change briefly there, but um, analyses show that no country is more vulnerable to the impacts of climate change mm. over the next few decades than Indonesia. How alert is Indonesia to these risks and where does Australia fit into this picture? Look... They're alert, but not alert, if I could put it that way. They are so dependent on the need for future economic growth. That drives everything. They are committed to having, let me think, I think it's uh, about 23 24%, uh, 23%, I think, of their energy needs by 2025 being renewables. They're not going to meet that target. They have a heavy dependence on coal to generate electricity and power for the archipelago, which is a vast, vast area, huge challenges in getting electrification out. Um, and uh, so it's not going to be easy for them to transition out of those things. Um, so they, they face some very serious sort of constraints. They've committed to, uh, under the um, Paris commitments, they've committed to, by 2030, reducing by about you know, 28 29%. Um, from you know 2005 emissions, they'll struggle to reach that. They say they could do more if they had more international assistance. So that then raises the question of what countries like us can do and all the rest of it. Um, in relation to, we can do more on renewables because we're putting so much focus here on the development of new technologies, and that may well produce something of particular interest that we can leverage and utilise with Indonesia, particularly since we have some experience they're interested in, in how do you get energy to remote communities. So there is an interest there. The science and practice of land management, because they desperately need to do stuff there, land use, um, uh, there's more we can do there. Coral reef management, 
mangrove management. We're, we're among the world's best on all of this and the new science being developed in these areas. We're leading in a, a lot of parts of that. We do some stuff with Indonesia on that, but nowhere near enough. We share the, exactly the same marine ecosystem, the same oceans, and so we've got a direct investment on making sure that ecosystem is healthy. So we should be doing more in promoting the research collaborations there and transferring that knowledge. And that means we need to spend more money. And we do that through the Development Cooperation Program, uh, which has been cut uh, for various reasons over the last few years, but which is a strategic asset which is functionally needed uh, by a country like Indonesia uh, to help, you know, in ways in which we can and where they would like us to help because we're a trusted partner in those areas. Speaking of of non-traditional security threats, the obvious one, at the moment is COVID-19. Australia has provided a very significant amount of support to Indonesia as it tackles this crisis, but could and should we do more? And how well are we managing the soft power dimension in the context of what's been labelled vaccine diplomacy? Mm. Look, we are doing the right thing. We pivoted our development cooperation programming very quickly to focus on what we could do uh, with the immediate short-term needs of COVID response in Indonesia. But we were dealing with an amount of money which should be bigger. We provided um, PPE, masks and assistance with um, uh, ventilators and that kind of thing. We provided a $1.5 billion loan, um, which was for budget support. And it's been used, uh, used for the COVID response, the social response. And and on vaccines, obviously, uh, you know, out of the half billion dollar program for assistance with vaccines in the region, uh, over a hundred million goes to Indonesia. There's COVAX money, and uh, more money has now been given in the current crisis. But frankly, we need to do more. Indonesia is Indonesia. If it fails in so many ways as a nation over the next decades because of the terrible impact of COVID, this directly impacts on us and our success of our region. So we have a big vested interest in uh, working with Indonesia at the moment with more assistance than we're giving. We recently announced another package um, with um, vaccines, more vaccines, with oxygen equipment and so on, but it should be a bigger and continuous process. After the tsunami, Prime Minister Howard gave a billion dollars. That was extremely effective helped a lot and has never been forgotten. And we were seen as standing by uniquely Indonesia as the closest, more immediate, big neighbour, developed country in that crisis. And we need to be uh, doing something similar, in my view, uh, in our own interests, because Indonesia's success is our success. And frankly, I'd like to see another loan, whether it's one billion, another one and a half billion, and it should be focused on public health, in Indonesia. So not only immediate, but the short to medium term needs of building up that system, which is desperately weak, pre-COVID desperately weak. And now its uh, its frailties are just shockingly exposed. So, um, and it would be welcome. We should be the go-to country in our own neighbourhood because we're the only developed country in our neighbourhood if there's a crisis. We can't do everything, but we can certainly do that. Gary, you've talked a lot about what else we can, what we should be doing with our with our neighbour. But uh, any more thoughts on what our priority should be with uh, our bilateral relationship, looking to the future? 
I think we need to focus in a number of areas which are picked up in the Comprehensive Strategic Partnership and there are action plans attached to that. We need to make sure we implement them and do more. Maritime, anything we can do together in maritime cooperation, given that we live, share the same maritime ecosystem and the longest working maritime boundary in the world, there's so much more we can do in that area. And it would be great if we could become the trusted source of maritime technology and anything in the cyber area because um, they know and ask to better understand the cyber threat and what we might be able to do as partners together. There, China and Russia are very active in showcasing what they can do to help Indonesia in those areas. Um, we, uh, it, we are doing some. But we're not spending enough and engaged enough in that activity. And it goes to maintaining critical infrastructure in the new digital economy with economic benefit flowing through as part of the new economic partnership as well. Education. About half the Indonesian students who were here before COVID remained. They're still here. There's actually been an uptick in Indonesian students signing on for Australian vocational education last year during COVID. That's a good sign. But we really need to make ourselves the trusted educational source for Indonesia and for training the middle-level professional levels in government and elsewhere in Indonesia through uh, this program known as Australia Rewards, which are tremendous scholarships. They go from undergraduate to postgraduate to short-term courses. Those short-term courses in designated areas, whether it's financial reform, medical issues, economic governance, have a huge impact. We need to be the trusted partner on all of that. Um, and research and collaboration, we really need to do so much more with Indonesia in that area, despite the challenges with COVID. And as difficult as it is, we've got to get some senior level visitors back to Indonesia because now there is a sense, well, where is Australia? And particularly if we really are going to be able to implement the comprehensive strategic partnership in particular, if it's to have any meaning, we can't let it drift. Well, Gary, thanks for a very comprehensive and I think strategic conversation. Thank you. That's all we have time for today on Policy, Guns and Money. We look forward to bringing you another episode soon. Thanks for listening.